Welcome to this Mag Debrief podcast for the 25th of September issue. I am John Severs, Commissioning Editor of TES, and I'm here as usual with Dan Worth, International Editor, and Gronya Hallahan, Senior Content Writer and Recruitment Editor. Two job titles, Gronya. Yeah, some doubly good. Doubly good. I like that. Um, we thought we'd try something different this week. Um, there's an amazing cover feature uh, from John Hutchinson looking at well, why we should employ a nonsense threshold, which is basically, you know, if a teacher does something amazing for 45 minutes of a lesson and then does something slightly dubious in, in a pedagogical sense for five minutes, what as a leader should you do in that observation? Should you leave it well alone? Should you challenge them? Should you, you know, discard the great work that's happened in the previous 45 minutes? Um, John has a really interesting take on that and it's a really good read. But we thought we'd focus on some of the other bits of the magazine that perhaps get less attention. And so we've all picked something from uh, the other sections. Um, and should we start with you, Gronia? Which one have you selected? So I've picked Stephen Lane's piece about Mind Your Language, where he discusses the, um, the perils of picking the wrong words when you're talking to children and how this can be... Um, Quite, quite a difficult, tricky, sticky situation that you can get yourself into. And he describes a time when he was teaching and he um, he spoke probably more in anger and haste than uh, reasoned and thought out <laughs> criticism of this, this child and how he had to backtrack. And then he goes on to discuss how generally as teachers, we have a responsibility about how we speak about our students and their parents and other staff and makes the argument that actually we should be really conscious of our language and it's no good saying things oh don't minute this but and then going on to say something provocative or so he calls a child an idiot doesn't he he does call a child an idiot yeah i mean ouch right have you done that the worst thing i've ever done was um a boy was drawing pictures of a girl in the class with really fat legs and he was showing it to the boy next to him and I caught him passing this picture, like to a cartoon of this girl with big fat legs. I was like, why would you do that? Like, that's such a horrible thing to do. And he I was like, that's a really weird thing to do. So I, I didn't say that in front of the class, pulled him to one side, told him off, went back in and he was really offended that I'd said it was weird. And he was moaning that I, to other people in the class that I'd said it was a weird thing to do, to draw a picture of a girl with fat. He was 16, he was in his GCSE class. And um, I like how you're still defending it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, well, that's a, that's not even the bad bit. I was like, hands up, who thinks Ryan is weird? For- oh <laughs> no, you didn't and- do that. The hands up. I was like, Did right, you put your own hand up? Case closed. Like, let's move on. And um, that's that was probably the most awful thing I did. <laughs> that that's bullying, Gronya. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said he couldn't be a prefect. Um, but yeah, that's. I, I think when you're pushed and when you're not thinking straight and you're tired, we all do things that we regret. And that's, but, um, I've, I've got sympathy for Steve. I've also well, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, maybe I'm, you know, putting my head above the parapet here, but I, I didn't, I didn't think calling a pupil an, an idiot in, in the moment when they were doing something idiotic, potentially, is it that bad? I mean, surely sometimes a, a short, sharp shock of just calling them out, putting them in their place a little bit is better than trying to be all be constantly trying to, you know, work your way around and find a nice way to say something. Uh, it's, and the word idiot is a bit contentious as well because of p- people will say that you shouldn't use the word idiot because it's in the same bracket as moron and imbecile and um, retard and spastic. Like there's a lot of words that we shouldn't really use anymore, and idiot is in that category. So it's 
that makes it complicated as well, doesn't it? We should point out that Steve's column is all about his regret at using that word and his <laughs> lesson and his lesson of of moving on from it. But I think Dan makes an interesting point that the balance between um, an insult and a short, sharp shock is very different. And I think perhaps you, your example of saying calling out a child as being weird and then having a vote on that is is arguably worse than calling a child an idiot. I don't know. What do you think, Dan? Should we should we stand judge and jury on Grognier here? <laughs> well, I say not having been in, in a classroom, it, it's hard to entirely know. But it, it does sound more sort of. I can imagine the people being more offended than that than being called an idiot. I mean, I, I was looking back to my own school days, and again, like we all we all do that, don't we? But I, I'm sure teachers regularly sort of would say, "Oh, stop! Don't be a stupid, don't be stupid," or you know, um, "idiot boy" or something like that. You know, not not to me, I'm not me specifically, I mean in general. And it got a laugh, and we all sort of, and that person would sort of, "Oh yeah, sorry," and then and the lesson would carry on. And I don't remember it sort of feeling like, "Oh, that was a bit untoward," or "Oh, they should never," have, or us all banding together to complain that the teacher was rude to a fellow pupil. And I feel like sometimes. Sometimes you just need that sort of just calling something out for what it is and moving on. And I think the minuting point he makes is interesting. I mean, his article is very good. Like he, he yeah, he talks about it quite openly. And I, I, I think that honesty is good. But the, the minuting thing is maybe different because if you're going to say something, maybe that's a bit mean. You're being mean in a setting is different. But I, I just think, yeah, I think it's OK maybe to sort of call out behaviour for what it is sometimes. Relationships, isn't it? You probably shouldn't do it on the first lesson mm. when you first meet that child, but it's okay to do it on the 20th when they know that you don't actually think they're an idiot, but they've just yes, been idiotic. Yes, that's a good point. It, it, he is right. Like it, It's better to say that was idiotic than saying you are an idiot. Mm. It, it's like when some parents won't say that their child's naughty, but they'll say what you're doing is naughty. Like mm. By labelling people, by saying you are this, then you, you become that. You're, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy then. I think we've got to be uh, compassionate to teachers here as well, that they're in, in incredibly high strain situations a lot of the time, particularly now. And, uh, you know, I, I'd, be a, I'd, I'd be a hypocrite if I st- sat here talking on this podcast and claimed that I'd never called one of my children an idiot or uh, said to them, why would you do that? Why would you bite your sister's ear? That is a weird and idiotic thing to do. Have compassion for that, but we're still not going to say it's okay. My my vote thing. No, you're you're irredeemable, I'm afraid, because you know you you didn't even apologise for it. You tried to defend it. I think I think you know you you have to ask for forgiveness first, Gronia. <laughs> but I think that you know there is a point that teachers are human and they're fallible, and there will be moments that you say something you regret. And I think what Steve makes the point is that it's what you do next. And he was as critical for his actions that he did next as as the action itself and in trying to sort of twist it and almost suggest that people had misheard or misunderstood when actually he as he admits in the piece it you know that was dishonest that was a second dishonesty really yeah it's um it's a tricky one but i think the the point he makes about the way that we speak and the language we use in other situations where it's not heated it's not it's not in that moment, slightly losing control of what you're saying, in meetings and the and in staff rooms and the way that we talk about children, the way that we talk about parents is really important. Mm, that's a nice one to uh, end that brief section on, and we'll go to Dan's choice, which slightly awkwardly for me is about delegation, and you know, I, I guess it could reflect badly on me the following conversation. Yeah, well, and it, and it was written by Gronje, so we're, and we're, it was written yeah, by Gronje. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, was this just an attempt to sort of? Is this subtle hints that my briefs are too uh, detailed, Gronje, or is is this entirely unrelated to me and I'm being slightly 
uh, self-obsessed. <laughs> uh, and I definitely cooked this up together and we thought, how can we tell John that he's, um, he's over-managing us? So, like, this is the way to do it. Yeah. No, of course it wasn't. Um, Dan, would you want to explain why you picked this one? What, what the yeah, article's about? Sure, it's an interesting piece about obviously about delegation and the art of doing it well um, and how not to do it. And, and teachers, cause a couple of teachers reflect on things they did and they realise afterwards like why their delegation wasn't as good as it could have been or should have been. And I just think it's an interesting topic, isn't it? Because it, it's, you know, you hear a lot about delegation and that idea of getting someone else to do something and how is that interpreted by that person? Is it, is it a blessing? Is it being an opportunity to grow and prove yourself in a new way? Or is it just dumping someone with the tasks you don't want to do? And how do you get that right? And, and you know, having been, you know, we've all worked in different places and delegation exists everywhere and um, your delegation is excellent, John, but I've certainly worked <laughs> with, with people whose delegation is, uh, was very poor and, and you realise what a damaging thing it can be and it does feel like, a, you know, um, a negative. And I think it's, it's something that, you know, you need to get right as a leader or indeed any teacher, even, even asking a pupil to do something is delegation, isn't it? If you give them a job to do, do they feel empowered by that or do they think they're being picked on? You know, it's a, it's a fine line. We've talked about it before, haven't we, Dan, that you, know, you used to run a news desk of, of, of a number of reporters. And at that time, I, I didn't have quite as many people working for me, but, but I had lots of freelancers. And we were talking about, you know, that balance between how involved should you get? How like, you know, what's the point where you're taking away their autonomy and ability to learn and protecting the outcome, which is, you know, every job is high accountability on a news desk, I imagine it was really high. I mean, you could get sued or, you know, you could get, uh, you know, the the story had to be right. So how did you balance that, do you think? Um, I think, yeah, it was that thing of like, you know, as you, as the reporters grew into their role, you were able to let go of the reins a little bit more and and send them to to events and you were sort of fairly comfortable letting them publish their own copy, for example, if it was out of hours, you know, in the US or something, but you wouldn't start like that. But ultimately it was about sort of trust, isn't it? And sort of once you know someone's good enough and just thinking, well, you know, you know what I want and what I don't want. And as long as you just fall on the right side of that, there won't really be a problem. And I might still sort of point something out afterwards and say, oh, it would have been better to have done this or I understand why you did this, but maybe next time try this. But, but every time it was all about just treating people with, I found just sort of thinking, well, just be sensible, you know, and don't publish something if you're not, you're not willing to stand by it 24 hours later sort of thing. And if, if, it's, if it's that contentious, you know, just wait and we'll have a look at it together. I think that same mindset applies. It's like, you know, you've got to trust people. If you give them a job to do, or do it, you're giving it to them because you think they can do it. It's not as a sort of trying to catch someone out or burden someone or whatever. I think you have to sort of give it to them because you think they can do it and they'll benefit from doing it because they'll bring their ideas to the fore. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one as well that one of the things I find is that I, I, I'm very conscious of giving away the sort of really mundane, boring stuff and thinking, God, that just seems like a horrible managerial thing to do. But at the end of the day, you have to do those things as a manager sometimes because, you know, in reality, you shouldn't be doing a lot of those things. And there's that awkward moment where you're sort of like, God, you know, should I be doing X or Y? And I think in school, there's, you know, I think the example somebody gave, I think it was Laura May Rowlands who gave was like being asked to do the photocopying. And I think, you know, that feels, if you've had, if you've done a degree and you've been through the whole system and you think, oh, I'm a teacher and I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. And then someone says, oh, can you go and get me some photocopying? I mean, I can see why she suddenly went, what? <laughs> but it is all part of the job, isn't it? We all have to do mundane things. And it's things like um, at parents' evening, it'll be SLT often making the tea and coffees and making sure that they're, they're packed away properly afterwards. And it's that, it's the boring stuff that when you rise up through leadership in schools, you think will be given to someone else to do. But no, that's, that's your job now. But that's, that's you to delegate out and you to organise. Mm. The funny thing about 
schools is that going on management training is quite common in other industries but it's not with teachers really you don't get told how to delegate you don't get told how to manage a team you have to sort of figure out yourself and you normally rise up through promotions because you're a good classroom teacher and that's got nothing to do with being a good good manager and being good at delegating so it's I think it's one that um, we could probably all get better I was thinking as well like you know in 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 our in our profession you you're constantly in fear of your employment you know journalism is incredibly competitive it's it's very high stakes and teaching is high stakes and you do have performance management but it's a very stable profession you know it's very um secure and you'd thought you know in mine and dan's line of work where we were talking about our own nervousness around delegation it's because you know ultimately we're culpable and ultimately it's our job on the line is there that same sense in teaching that you know, is there that same excuse that, oh, I better do this because otherwise it's my job that's on the table? You might be thinking that your TLR will be taken away from you because it's not, it's something that can just, can just be taken and yoked out. Mm. Um, just because you've risen up through leadership, you can be performance managed out of leadership again. I don't think, you might feel secure in you'll always be able to find a job, but that's not the same as always having a job that you want to do. You might have to end up going to a school you don't particularly want to teach in or an area you don't want to go to or moving into a different sector or something. It, it's, yep, it's secure, but performance, being performance managed and being put on capabilities is a real threat to teachers. And if you have that feeling of insecurity, it's not going to make you necessarily a better manager. It's just going to make you more anxious and more worried and more stressed. And delegate less, potentially. Yeah. That, that is a good point, isn't it? Delegation is also a good thing for a leader because it stops the stress building up, maybe. And actually, you need to do that. So, yeah, it's not, you, you can't not do it. So you've got to do it well when you do it. So, yeah, it's, it, that's why I like the article because it opens up a lot of thought points. So, yeah, it's good. For the listeners, Gronio is grinning wild, wildly at the moment. <laughs> Mostly because I'm remembering how I had to pitch this to you three times before you accepted it. Yeah, it just makes me sound like some sort of monster and I'm definitely not. Um, so let's swiftly move on. Um, so the third article we're looking at is a piece by John Morgan, who's a very, very, very good uh, freelance journalist and who I delegated this feature to with um, complete trust. Um, let's have a look at you on the screen. Are you sitting up? Are you paying attention? Are you making eye contact? Because we're talking about slant, this, you know, this... I guess it's a routine for learning. It's a behavior management technique. It gets called different things, but essentially it's a, it's a, a way of ensuring that children are paying attention that's come over from the US. And over the summer, there was a big furore, if you like, at the end of August when the two schools who were key to sort of pushing this into the mainstream decided to stop using it. And in particular, uncommon schools uh, claimed that it was disadvantaging already disadvantaged students. So we looked at that and we thought, well, that's interesting. But was it already disadvantaging students? I mean, is the process of sitting in a particular way and doing a routine for learning, is that actually damaging your ability to process the information the teacher is giving you? Which takes us to cognitive load theory, which is Professor John Sweller's theory of, um, I guess it's learning, but it's more about how the mind works. It, it's that the working memory capacity is limited and that you have to optimise the learning experience so that you can get the most into your working memory and so we, we we set john the task of saying okay well if that is the case is is slanting is using the slant method impacting on a student's ability to optimize their attention for learning and 
it turns out it might be. Um, I, you two have probably written, uh, hopefully you've read this piece. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. very interesting article, very interesting. What, what did you think? I mean, John's conclusion, I guess, is, is not definitive by any way because there's no research on this. And mm. Well, no, no, no direct research. There's some interesting research from uh, one of the professors at UCL, which found children who were standing on a force board and asked to do certain tasks. Actually, their performance dropped in both tasks, both their ability to stand on the force board and their ability to do some pretty basic arithmetic. But then some other studies in the US found that the kids who were slanting got better results. And so you're there going, well, okay, yeah. what does this mean? <laughs> I guess. Re research reaches we don't know conclusion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not, not uncommon. I mean, what do you think? I mean, none, this wasn't around really when I was at school, I guess people might say sit up a bit or, you know, mm. are you paying attention? But certainly there wasn't a routine for how you sit and how you focus. I mean, do you think it would be something that you could do? Do you think it would be something which is an important point in the piece that you could automate? I mean, do you think it'd become natural to sit and... No, I, yeah, I don't like it. I, didn't like, I don't like the idea of it. I, I, I did some lecturing, as I mentioned in a previous podcast at the start of this year, and, and I did find it irritating when the students wouldn't face the front. They were sort of turning on their side and they weren't really sort of engaged. And that, the, that element, the look to the front bit, I can sort of get on board with. But the rest of it, I don't know. If, I think if anyone thinks about how they listen or, or you know, engage in a conference, whether, you know, as an adult or, or watching a good documentary, you don't just sit still and look forward like a robot. You sit and you slump and you end up leaning forward and you find yourself in contorted positions because it's just what we do as humans. For some reason, we sort of slouch out and particularly kids, you know, they're full of energy and they want to they want to move around. And I think in some ways you do your best thinking like that. You sort of wrestling with it and you put your hand on your face and, and I just think that you've got to sit there and stare at the front and do all these things. And that's only then you'll start to learn things. I, I just can't quite get on board with it i understand why a teacher would want that so i've been in that environment and I, it must feel easier but i don't believe that means kids are learning better what about you Corey? as an ex-teacher i mean is the is the appeal of this a more manageable classroom i mean it is very popular talking about how you want students to look when you're talking is something that you'd normally start the year with like i begin the year talking about like classroom routines and what what my classroom would be like um with all my classes and i would often say like I want to see your listening faces that means put your stuff down you look at me and you listen but the amount of time that you actually require students to do that in a lesson wouldn't be for very long like we're not talking about doing it for very very long periods of time it might be whilst I'm giving them an instruction and they would do it um when you're sort of teaching teaching like doing a long explanation I wouldn't expect them to all be sat there nothing in their hands just staring at me um you probably odd. have a vote about how weird it was. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I mean, if I wanted them to, to look my way, I'd often just shout, look at me, look at me, I'm great, look at me, and then go into it. It's, it's all about character and about the way that the teacher manages their class and what they want in their class. But expecting students to sit for a long period of time, just still staring ahead. It reminds me a bit of church. <laughs> <laughs> Is it all to serve and have to sit there and just be really, really still? And if I moved, my dad would pick me up on it afterwards, like you were fidgeting then. Like, like don't do that. Is it any, I mean, how different is it to a, uh, uh, a year R teacher saying one, two, three eyes on me? Or um, I'm trying to think of some of the other phrases that are used commonly in primary school and seem to be more acceptable than, than slant. Because, you know, as John says in the piece, we're not asking a lot you know it, it's not too stringent but we are asking something of the of these kids and i think as it says in the piece there's a variation among your 
your pupils some will actually prefer to sit that way some won't and it goes back to that notion of okay school is tough learning is tough because we're applying one rule to a huge swathe of variations and you know there is an important send component to this yeah so that's what i was thinking of when you were saying that and it's the um like so john and i both have very very poor eyesight and though yours was you developed as an adult didn't you yeah so mine was developed up from the age of 15 16 yeah so when you were at school did you struggle looking at the the board for a long time no i didn't know oh so one of the things that i find really difficult is staring at a board or staring at a screen i'll have to i have to right and my, my optician told me to do it so it must be a good thing that i've got to look out a window and like defocus my eyes so i've got very very short i'm very short-sighted I cannot just sit and stare at a whiteboard like that would be impossible for me. And some, somebody expected me to do that. Like just medically, I can't do that. I've got to look out of the window. And if, if I look like I'm daydreaming, I'm really, really not. I'm listening, but I can't stare at a whiteboard. That would just be impossible. And there's kids with all sorts of different needs, like and much greater needs than that, but can't have that sustained, like tracking the teacher or, tra or looking at the whiteboard. It's just impractical. It's not, you couldn't reasonably expect a child to do that for a long period of time. I thought it was interesting in the piece that it was talking about how you look at what you pay attention to. And so, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're looking at a teacher, you're listening to what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So you may be paying attention to the teacher, but actually as a teacher, do you want them to pay attention to you or do you want them to pay attention to what the words are? And there's an interesting bit where it says, you know, we will look away to sort of you're not looking at anything specific. You're actually sort of looking inside your brain, trying to search for something. And we automatically look away and look up when something is challenging because we're taking, taking stimuli away from us, essentially. And so that whole eye contact thing is very complex, not just from a send point of view. And there's loads of areas of send where uh, eye contact is problematic. And there's also areas of shyness or, you know, self-consciousness where eye contact is really tough. But also there's this is processing thing that these it's clashing with it's clashing with the science almost. It's like, well, okay, eye contact, yes, as Niels Lavi says in the piece, you focus on what your eyes are looking at. But also she says, you look away when you're doing some complex processing. You look you turn away from the focus. So I mean, did you ever demand eye contact? Both of you actually. Dan, when you ran your news desk, were you demanding eye contact <laughs> at every staff meeting? No, absolutely not. No. <laughs> No, but yeah, I agree. That's the whole point, isn't it? When you're trying to think about something, you look away, you look up, you look down. I don't, I don't know why. I mean, again, I'm sure we neuroscience does can explain it maybe. But, but I think that's what means if you're explaining something complex and at that very moment, a pupil looks away because they're really, it's just forming and they're just getting the core idea and you, and you tell them off and tell them to look at you. Well, how do you know you didn't just interrupt the core moment of their eureka moment in them understanding it? Because that's what we do as humans. We don't just look at something all the time, nonstop. We, we look everywhere. We just, we just, we just do. And what about you, Gordon? Did you have a, when you were telling someone off in a corridor, I tell, we, shan't, we shouldn't say telling someone off, should we? It's the it's wrong phrase. But if we were having a behaviour discussion in the co corridor, would you say, look at me when I'm talking to you, to the child? I don't think I, I think it would depend on the kid. It, it depends on what they're doing. So if somebody's deliberately looking away in like a defiant mm. kind of way, like turn out like no 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 look at me like having a conversation that's what adults do we look at each other but if it was somebody who genuinely struggled with eye contact which is a very different thing like if they're looking towards me but they're not quite meeting my eye because that's something they find difficult 
that's like that's good enough that's what they can do it's what is the point like what what is the point you're trying to get at if you're trying to talk to them and you want them to listen to you and you feel what they're doing is stopping them from listening to you then you would correct that but if if you're just trying to pick them up on something like what's what's the point like there's no what you're trying to get out of that make them feel small that's not something you should try and do as a, as a teacher it's not what teachers do generally i would say you would just trying to get them to listen to you and like look in your direction actually like eye contact eye contact is a bit weird and a bit intense even like weird fact for you that i learned from our colleague simon Locke's piece in tears a few months ago is that when we think people are making eye contact with us they're often looking at our middle of our forehead or our nose they're not actually (laughs) looking in our eyes because the way the brain calibrates everything that actually eye contact is a bit of a myth in itself anyway we're not really looking into someone's eyes sorry all the romantics out there uh, <laughs> yeah i'm usually looking just past the person that was like behind <laughs> a good way of uh, one of those conference things where you're always looking for the next opportunity dan harsh <laughs> harsh <laughs> yeah. um before we go i think it'd be interesting to just to think about john's feature brief the cover feature briefly about nonsense and about nonsense teaching. And I was thinking about this in our own context about, as a journalist, you always have a quirk. You know, you will do something that annoys the hell out of everyone else and has no real grounding in making the piece better. And it has no real positive contributing factor to the end product, but you do it anyway. And my thing is I will, well, I've got two. I'm completely incapable of spelling there correctly in the right context. Um, It doesn't matter. I know exactly the rule. You can tell me it 400 times, but if I'm writing a piece and I'm in a state of flow, which happens all the time, um, (laughs) I can't get there and there right. And I also have a horrible habit and it's completely inefficient. I can't, if the intro doesn't make sense to me, I can't edit beyond it. I have to sit there and edit an intro. And then every paragraph I go down, I have to re- re-edit the intro as I go down. And it's, it's the most inefficient way of working. It's completely <laughs> nonsense. If, you, if someone came in and analysed it, I'd be like, they'd be saying, what, what the hell are you doing, John? It's just something I have to do. And, you know, ho- hopefully the readers of Tez will realise that, you know, the end product's good as a result. But it's probably not the most, it's probably a nonsense way of getting there. <laughs> um, have you two got a good example? Uh, let's see if one of you puts your hands up in case one of you's not ready. <laughs> I, I, I didn't realise you were going to put us on the spot and ask us for our nonsense working habits. And I'm sure I've got plenty, but trying to think of stuff in my head. Um, I mean, I often mis- regularly use apologise and apologies wrong on emails. So I say to someone, oh, apologies for that. But I say, apologise for that. Which is like, <laughs> That's a bad <laughs> it one. It doesn't look right. And it doesn't matter how many times, like you say, I go and double check the spelling. It's just one of those words. It just will not fit in my brain correctly like apologizing people across the education world you've been told to apologize by dan (laughs) apologize to me (laughs) apologies apologies but yeah i don't know but i would say it's a nonsense way of working it's just 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 being being a bit of an idiot if we're going to bring loop loop back to that goal we're creating (laughs) meta podcast references here (laughs) yeah what about you going i'm really easily distracted and if i find something difficult i get to a point in the piece that i'm writing and i think this is hard my hand automatically goes to my phone. Like, so I, like, oh, that's tricky. Let's go see what's on Twitter. <laughs> Let's send me a message. Let's have a look there. And so in order to work more efficiently, I often put my phone on the other side of the room to force myself not to do that, that habit. But even though I know that I will do that, if I leave my phone next to me, that's a stupid inefficient way to work, isn't it? I suppose that's my... 
Yeah, I have. I've got a good one. Actually, I've just thought something I do actually, which is odd, is that when I'm writing a piece, if I've got someone with a long job title and like a school name or whatever it is, and you've got to get that right because it's you know their you know their development director of second secondary school, you know, it's not just they're a teacher. You've got to get their job title, and the school's got a long-winded name. And often, night times in my copy, I will just put you know Mr. Smith X from X and just leave that in the copy, and I find it a real it mentally it exhausts me. To think I've got to go off and find that information, and it will take literally ten <laughs> seconds on Google or on the email signature. But once I've done it, I feel like the whole piece suddenly looks more satisfying to me. Like, oh, I've, I've sort of finished now because I've put the right job title and name in. And I never <laughs> do that to the very end because I just can't face having to go and scout at that information and put it all in and write it. And I think that's a hangover from my tech days when everyone had like senior vice president of external communications and marketing strategy. At, you know, it's like, oh my God, I can't be bothered to put it in. But just a just weird way of working. Uh, there we go nonsense all around people um so next week we've got a really nice feature on um the early years and we'll have a good discussion about that but for now that's us see you later guys